0: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Royal College of Surgeons of England. Uh, My name is Sam, I work here, and it gives me great pleasure today. um, I've pressed a red button. It gives me great pleasure today to introduce a lunchtime (laughs) lecture that gels particularly well with our temporary exhibition in the Hunterian Museum, Surgeons at Work, which will encourage you all to pop up and see if you haven't already after today's lecture. Which is delivered, we're delighted to say, uh, by Dr. Fiona Haslam, who is a double doctor, um, firstly with a career in obstetrics and genetics, and then retraining in history of art. I mean, many of our medical brethren will uh, engage with history of medicine uh, to, uh, later in their careers, uh, but Fiona's really done this uh, to a, a marked extent by gaining a PhD in history of art under Martin Kemp at St. Andrews. And from that PhD came uh, her book from Hogarth the Rowlandson, Medicine and Art in 18th Century Britain. She's also co-authored with her son, Dr. David Haslam, Fat, Gluttony and Sloth, which has to be my favourite book title. <laughs> Fat, Gluttony and Sloth, is like a way ahead lifestyle. Um, Obesity in Literature, Art and Medicine. And today she's going to talk to us about medical images in 18th century art from your first of the two um, uh, projects I've mentioned. Thank you very much. Thank you.
1: Well, thank you very much for your welcome. Um, If you don't like a number of the slides I've got, it will make you very pleased we now have a National Health Service. uh, (laughs) Make you appreciate it. Um, So, From Womb to Tomb, um, the title of this, And the images I I want to show you are really not like the ones in um, your exhibition here, which I hope you will find time to go and see, though one or two, I think, do coincide. But the ones here I think are done by people who were very knowledgeable about medicine, whereas in the 18th century the images that I have got are really from people, not professionals, but people who inevitably were uh, participators in receiving medical treatment or the kind of treatment that was on offer. And the reason I chose the 18th century was it was a period where medicine and art were changing. Medicine was ordering itself with this college of physicians, college of surgeons, um, all trying to get their houses in order but there were still a lot of different um, people uh, who were participating in medicine, the old wives, the herbalists, uh, quacks, um, itinerant charlatans, all sorts of people who really still carried on their trade in different parts of the country. Surgeons, I'm afraid, were rather looked down upon because they were manual workers and... uh, They were very keen to get their own houses in order so one very important artist at the time was William Hogarth now he came from Cumbria or his father came from Cumbria Richard Hogarth and he was a classics teacher and uh, taught at school up in the north but he wanted to come down to London to better his position and to um, Perhaps make his fortune. A lot of people came down to London to teach, but I'm afraid he was not very successful. Um, he lived near St. Bartholomew's Hospital and Smithfield Market, a very busy area, and William, his son, was born there. Now, Richard started a coffee shop. A lot of coffee shops developed at the time and for the interests of different sectors, there were artists, playwrights, doctors, um, people who all came and did a lot of their trade or uh, interests through the coffee houses. But Richard Coffee House was for Latin speakers, and this was not really all that popular, and not surprisingly, he failed. And the debtor's prison um, beckoned, and um, Hogarth's father, during a lot of his childhood, was in the debtor's prison, and his mother made a living for them by making um, teething medicine for babies. And Hogarth, who had always been interested in art and um, in a busy area, he did sketches wherever he was, and he, he just learnt a lot about life and life around the hospital, and um, he eventually was apprenticed to a silver plate engraver, where he learned how to do business cards and um, uh, um, crests and all sorts of that. But he didn't agree with art as it was taught at the time, where students went on grand tours, uh, they learnt really high art, and that was mythology, epic, historical paintings, and had to copy works of the old masters, as Raphael and Michelangelo and Leonardo, and they spent their time copying (coughs) these. Well, Hogarth didn't agree with this. He thought it was uh, inhibiting to free freedom of expression. So he... um, decided he would do his own thing and uh, started um, doing series of paintings and selling them by subscription. Uh, Quite a number of the um, images that I have got are from Hogarth and this is why I'm sort of emphasising his um, position in the art world at that time. Now satire was the language of the age there with, with Pope and Gay and Fielding and they um, put a lot of satire and wit into their literary works and Hogarth um, and his colleagues started doing this in the art world and satire doesn't um, inhibit you from the truth because Satire had to be based on truth to be effective. But um, Hogarth introduced a lot of extra images, some of them wallpaper images, that you might look at a picture and not really notice them. And it was when I was looking around at pictures when um, I started being interested in medicine, in art, that you could see sort of files of things on a windowsill or um, a Test a pipe or enema syringe on a mantelpiece. And these are not sort of the whole picture, but they're important to show what was available at the time. And the, the viewers of the paintings would know what these were. So um, this was Hogarth's idea of what doctors were like to begin with at the time. And there was very little to choose, between the quacks and the orthodox doctors. And uh, this is one of his illustrations called The Company of Undertakers. Now this used, his original um, title was Company of Physicians. And when he was working with the silver plate engraver, he spent quite a lot of time doing um, the crests um, and heraldry. And this he set out as um, an escutcheon for the physicians, but it set out um, with the black border and it's got the crossbones here as supporters and it's called the Company of Undertakers because really he thought there was no difference between the doctors, the physicians in the bottom part And three notorious quacks up there, with a very nebulous line between them. And uh, he made play with the undertakers of the time, who um, had their batons, like the physicians. And um, they carried these around with their mock expressions um, of sympathy. And they had their batons for marshalling um, the funerals. And undertakers had really taken over from the heralds um, with undertaking the funerals. And here we have the the doctors with their, they had three distinctive um, attributes with their periwigs and their canes to noses, and they were all in consultation. And they had um, perfume pomanders in the the necks, the heads of their canes to nose. This was to ward off any of the ills around a place. And they used it three in consultation, because if one person wanted somebody another opinion, he would ask a junior. If the junior didn't agree with him. Um, the senior usually prevailed, but he would bring someone else. So they were usually three in consultation. And here they're consulting over the urine flask, large urine uh, flask, which was the center of attention here. These are all well-known physicians of the time. Um, Hogarth is, people say he was a cartoonist, he did cartoons. He, didn't, he did caricatures and attributes of various people are recognizable and based on the characters of the time. Now, up at the top here, we have three notorious uh, quacks, really, in the center here, an important um, person, is Mrs. Mapp, Sally Mapp, who was a bone setter. And she had no medical training. She had learnt her trade from her father, in Wiltshire, and he was a farrier. And she had brought her expertise from the farm up to London, and she used to come in a coach and four uh, and uh, did some good work. But um, unfortunately, she was very partial to drink, and that was her downfall eventually. But she was very famous. Um, here we have Spot Ward, who was a very well-known quack and he had been, he had no medical training and he was brought up in a dry salters business and he by some chance um, was made a member of parliament, nobody quite knows how that happened, there was some mistake in return I think, but he eventually had to escape to France where he developed a pill which would cure everything. And he came back to this country with his pill and uh, all the sextons and undertakers and coffin makers knew him very well because with one pill he he caused more deaths than any of the other um, physicians in the country. So they thought, well, he must be very clever. All these others needed far more um, uh, medicine, quarts or uh, pills, Galore, whilst he could just kill with one. <laughs> and, oh, sorry. The other, the last person up at the top there. Oh, I see. I've gone. Excuse me, I haven't used this before, so you have to forgive me. Um, gentleman at the top there. he He was an oculist, and he had some medical training. And he, he has his eye in the head of his cane, and he used to go around from marketplace to marketplace. He was an itinerant, and because of that, he earned his place in Hogarth's um, um, image. And whether this is hoodwinking the public, I don't know. But this is what Hogarth thought of all... Um, the medical fraternity and um, he wasn't the only one who thought that. So the motto at the bottom at um Mortis Amago says everywhere the image of death. Now the next slide I have to show I'm sure a lot of you will have heard of this this is Mary Toft and her who gave birth to rabbits. Um, this was a topical uh, event that Hogarth um, uh, made use of. and um, It's about a woman who gave birth to 17 rabbits and one leg of a cat. Um, I think there's going to be a lecture in somewhere in London in the near future, isn't there, about... Mary Toft and her rabbits, and do, many of you might be interested to go and see it. But the event took place in 1726, and it was advertised in a contemporary journal. From Guildford comes a strange but well-attested piece of news that a poor woman who lives at Godalming near that town was about a month past, delivered by Mr John Howard, an eminent surgeon and man-midwife of a creature resembling a rabbit. Hogarth produced this engraving um, as a result of this, and it's called Cuniculari, or The Wise Men of Godliman in Consultation. And (coughs) she went on to deliver 17 rabbits. Um, Now, not only do these images um, satirise the event, and subvert traditional um, religious images and paintings, but they do offer a view of some of the ideas of procreation at the time. Were man and beast entirely separable? Um, man's role was threatened, if this, had been, if this was true. So there was controversy at the time about this. Here is Mary Toft on her bed, uh, test a bed here, and they here are the three wise men, who are all eminent medical men, who have come to see her, and this is subverting the, the role of the th- three wise men, and they are, seem to be carrying gifts. Here we've got the man midwife who's dressed, uh, well, transvestite, because Man midwives were an unknown species, really, they were not welcomed. Um, here's one praying his thanks, and here, is this gentleman was a dancing master. He, was, uh, he worked in the royal household, and he had come um, really on his basis of teaching dancing rather than as a doctor. And, uh, but he was sent along to just see what was going on here. Um, there we have the rabbits. Um, these letters underneath tell the roles of the people who are taking part here. But the issues that were risen, the subverting of the um, role of the, um, of the artist by the use of a, a biblical painting, the man-midwife, um, the role of man threatened, and also whether the mother was affected during pregnancy, um, the output. Um, she, Mary Toft was said to have been startled by rabbits in a field when she, when she was three months pregnant, and this had uh, uh, affected her. Oh, and also a cat jumped on her bed. So this was the excuse given her giving birth to these rabbits so the ignorance of the doctors was another issue that that was brought into mind so here is a Dutch print artist at the time of the man midwife and you'll note that he has to have a sheet around his neck so that he couldn't see uh, what was going on he could only feel because it was um, threatening the woman if uh, if he was not sort of covered up and disguised, so the man, the man midwife was uh, this was another view of him. this was by Cruikshank Isaac Cruikshank, and he has painted this or in this picture here we have the ordinary midwife who has just her simple, her hands, her warm fire, a pap vessel just to feed the baby. Everything was just homely warm and comfortable. Now here on the other side, we have the man midwife, who um, has terrifying instruments, uh, but he also has lots of love potions and uh, medicines and um, uh, making... Pills and medicines, there, and he was a threat to the ordinary midwife and uh, uh, a suspicion of sexual interference, and was not to be condoned. So, the kinds of treatment were offered this to patients in many pictures, although not always as the main theme. Now, Harlot's Progress is one of Hogarth's paintings. Have any, has anybody seen the series of Hogarth's paintings? He did a series of six um, paintings at the Harlot's Progress, and this was the story of a young girl who'd come to London for the first time and she had got off the coach in London and um, was carrying some gifts in a basket to her aunt. Now, eyeing her from a door is a pimp, and he um, um, takes her in, and she is offered a post uh, at a Jewish man's house, and there she becomes his mistress. Now, this is a series, that's the second one. The third one, um, she is removed from the Jew's house because she has had another man friend there and she has been found out. And you see her then in a garret in Drury Lane where she is a common prostitute. Then the guards come along and she is taken to prison. She's taken to Bridewell where she's beating hemp and her condition is deteriorating, which you can see from the state of her clothes uh, and um, everything that is going on around her. Now, plate five is here, and this is the result of her misdoings. And um, Hogarth used to call some of his series novels in paint on modern morals stories. And this is what has happened next. She has succumbed to syphilis. And um, here we have two doctors who are arguing about what treatment she would have. This is a notorious quack, uh, a doctor Rock who is offering her pills. Here we have a Mr Massorbin, who was a French doctor, and he has his medication in liquid form to offer. And they are arguing about what she should have. Here, the maid servant is telling him to stop arguing and come and attend to the patient who is in the process of having a vapor bath, which was a treatment for syphilis. Um, now, a vapor bath, you get a shallow pan with a broad bottom, pour boiling water into it to a depth of between two inches having made a brick or a large stone red-hot in the fire, has the fire ready to receive the stone, um, and place this half-covered only in the water. A perforated seat must be placed over the pan on which the patient must sit naked with a good-sized blanket wrapped all around him, um, letting it reach the floor and accepting the head, covering the body entirely." So here Hogarth has painted this for us and she's wrapped up like this. Now a maid son here is rifling amongst in a trunk, presumably for grave clothes because our young lady here is not doing very well. She's had a son here. Uh, nobody seems to be paying much notice to him. But on the floor here are what they call an anodyne necklace, and this was supposed to ward off uh, syphilis in the children, to ward off the congenital effects of syphilis. Um, on the door, I'm not sure if it's on the over here, I hope it shows on the picture, there are some condoms which were made out of, uh, um, of pigs, uh, the cecum animals but they're supposed to be kept in water and these are just hanging behind the door this possibly indicates that they were ineffective in producing this child on the, on the clothes stool here there are there's a prescription there which says Dr. Rock Sorry. this is a, just a detail of this And on this paper, too, there are some teeth. Now, the cure for syphilis at the time was mercury, or hoped for cure. And mercury um, loosened the gum, the teeth, and the teeth fell out. And this shows that uh, the harlot has had Dr. Rock in attendance. We saw Dr. Rock back on this. He's here and her teeth are here. She's been given mercury. Now this was to sweat out the disease but on the mantelpiece here there are also something. There's a clister pipe here which was an old kind of enema and that was made, an enema syringe, that was made out of a pig's bladder usually and uh, a reed or a hollow tube was inserted in that, and that was used as an enema syringe. And this was all to, to try and dispel the syphilis. So, just by looking at a lot of the details in Hogarth's works, you find quite a lot of what was going on at the time. If this were not so, people wouldn't believe his, his prints and his stories. So these are what I mean by the wallpaper images that sometimes appear. Other treatments that are offered? Here we have a different kind of animus syringe, which is probably more <laughs> obvious. And <coughs> this the ubiquitous enema syringe would be familiar to most of the viewers at the time of Hogarth. Because enemas were used for most most things, um, for such complaints as colic, diarrhea, worms, headaches, fevers, venereal disease—you name it—an enema would cure it. Now here we have the infliction, punishment inflicted. Upon Lemuel Gulliver, and those of you who have read Gulliver's travels um, will know about Gulliver. And his punishment was for urinating on the palace of Mildendo to extinguish a fire that threatened it. So this was his punishment. Um, (coughs) Now, Hogarth exploited uh, the publication of Swift's book, Gulliver's Travels. Uh, for the political satire. And we have, um, I don't know whether it's very clear, Um, we have the clergyman officiating from his pulpit. Can it, not terribly clear. I hope you can see it. He's watching the proceedings uh, from a pulpit, which is, It's on here. Can you see him there? And he's sitting there on his chamber pot pulpit. And the first minister is just watching everything that's going past. And neither of the church or the state are taking any notice of all the chaos that's going around with um, uh, all the evil that is going on in society. So Hogarth used political satire as well as um, the, the, the medical side as well. Here we have cupping. And um, This is a cupping of Dr Syntax, a uh, fictional schoolteacher by Thomas Rowlandson. And this was a treatment for severe bruising from which the schoolteacher has suffered. This was supposed to draw out the bad humours of the underlying structures to the surface thereby relieving congestion. Uh, now for this, glass or, grass, bla, glass or brass cups were popular with a spirit lamp. And air was extracted from the cup by means of a lighted lamp and a piece of wool or tow. And this was used as a wick. Um, and it was soaked in spirit. An incision was made in the skin, In various parts of his body. Here is poor Dr. Syntax having the cups that have been warmed placed on various parts of his body, and then as it cools down, um, it draws either a bruise um, or if this means some scarification, which they often did with a lancet, um, then it would draw blood. And uh, this was very popular. And also removed all ill because it brought any of the bad humors from the body up to the surface. And here we have bleeding. This is from uh, a detail from Hogarth's election series, and here we have um, the surgeon bleeding the mayor who's had a fit of apoplexy having overeaten the oysters in front of him here. Um, there is, f- unfortunately, there isn't time to tell you all the stories of, uh, of Hogarth's um, series, but if you do get a chance, it's well worth going to see them. The election entertainment is actually uh, at the Soane's Museum on the other side of the square here, so um, it's not far to go and see that. Uh, <coughs> now, bleeding was a traditional remedy for many of the ills in order to draw out the bad humours again. Um, Uh, It was also used as a prophylactic to ward off sickness. And one Thomas Turner, a Sussex grocer um, of the 1750s, is said to have thought that a bath should be taken every spring, along with the annual bloodletting. Almost all rural clergymen could bleed and could order a purge. I don't know that you would want to go and ask your local uh, clergyman these days. But, um, here we have the bleeding of a fat woman with a suitable-sized uh, container. Then we have dentistry, the provision of false teeth. Um, French dentist here and he's showing off a lady's teeth and here's um, her husband coming along to inspect. The trouble was with the first false teeth there was always difficulty in keeping the upper teeth in place Um, so ladies who had the false teeth didn't usually stay eat very much at meals they just sort of picked at their food and then at the end of the meal they would go up to their rooms able to take out their teeth and just chew on their hardened gums whilst the men drank the port, presumably. But um, the fams were not just an affectation, they were often to uh, ward off the bad breath of their associates um, um, and also to hide a blemished smile. Now, writer and and Dr. Tobias Smollett described Tabitha Bramble in his book The Expedition of Humphrey Clinker, thus, a maiden of 45, her teeth straggling and loose of various colours and conformation. This was probably similar to many of people at the time, and the general state of health during the 18th century was (coughs) poor, lack of cleanliness, Inadequate and inappropriate diet, and in upper and middle classes in particular, a surplus of sweetmeats contributed to the decay. French dentistry was more advanced than um, British. Here we have a Rowlandson's print of transplanting of teeth, and here we have uh, a young a boy really uh, looks rather grubby brought him in and he's having teeth, his teeth taken out to transplant <coughs> into, into the lady um, who's looking rather disdainful she's not sure that she quite wants to have a, a tooth from this ragamuffin but the dentist nevertheless is removing the tooth and she is going to, be, um, to, to receive it and um, he's obviously had some, and he's admiring his, his teeth. Now, Rawlinson drew attention to this practice in the late 18th century. John Hunter had given it his seal of approval and said that young, fresh teeth had the best chance of becoming firm and fixed. After transplantation, the new tooth was fixed to the two neighbouring teeth by means of silk or seaweed, and the patient was advised not to disturb it. A dead tooth might be used, but these didn't always retain their colour. The fashion declined for various reasons, um, the improvement of artificial dentures, the failure of the transplanted tooth to remain secure, and the fear of introducing disease, and the general distaste for the practice, highlighted by people such as Rowlandson. The first, um, or one of the early providers of uh, porcelain teeth was a f- Wedgwood factory in this country. Um, I, I haven't been able to get, find a picture of these or uh, see them, but I was interested to read that it was the Wedgwood company that produced false teeth. And here we have amputation, and this is the leg amputation at St. Thomas's Hospital. Um, I don't know the artist of this one, and I think the original painting has actually gone missing. But you can see that uh, no anaesthetic, only thing that could be offered was strong arms, hold them down, that's brandy to uh, relieve some of the suffering, and opium, and that was all that could be offered. Um, here we ha- oh, sorry um, tools of the trade here. Um, it's got a tourniquet here. The operator just wears the carpenter's overalls. Haven't got a nice handsome surgeon like the one upstairs with his rubber gloves in the exhibition. Um, this was not a nice operation. The students are up and behind there watching what goes on. This is Rowlandson's um, version of the man being held down. This one's just sort of resting his hand on the patient's head so he can get a better view. Um, No tourniquet around. The tools here, bag of tools, a misplaced femur amongst them um, He has a crutch it seems to be his only offer of support afterwards um, the surgeon's names are on the board here don't know if any of you recognise any of them <laughs> now this again is one of Hogarth's it's called Southwark Fair And in the centre of this, we have a quack doctor. And he is puffing smoke. He's a fire-eating and puffing the smoke. This, I think, is to hoodwink all the people at the fair. And quacks used to go round from fair to fair, um, offering their um, pills or potions. And they were offering sort of one pill or medication to cure all ills why pay an apothecary for lots of different drugs that he had prescribed when for one um, medication you could be cured now often these potions just had a bit of brandy to promote euphoria uh, make them feel better until the quack had had left to the next market town and out of reach of any retribution for no results. Of course, occasionally, um, illnesses just cure themselves. So some of them um, said, oh yes, they had been cured by Dr. So-and-so when really he would have been cured without anything at all. But behind the quack doctor here is his dainty, dressed in a harlequin outfit, and he is holding up his master's wares to um, encourage the... Um, the patrons round to come and buy. So, quite doctors were well quite um, in a, available. Now, here is another marketplace. Where I'm not I think we have it on. There's supposed to. There's a, an elderly gentleman on a platform. I'm sorry, it might be just off the edge. And he is seeking rejuvenation. So he's in the marketplace, all the people around, bound to attract all the visitors, and um, uh, the quack doctor is offering him rejuvenation. Now, you all know what this one is. And this is about vaccination against smallpox. So Edward Jenner was born in Berkeley, Gloucester, in 1749 and he trained at St. George's Hospital under John Hunter and then returned to Gloucester. Belief in many country districts that those who'd had cowpox a naturally occurring disease in the udders of cows were protected against smallpox, and he determined to put this to the test. And In 1796, he introduced some lymph or matter taken from a cowpox vesicles on the finger of a dairymaid who'd been infected with cowpox whilst milking blossom into the arm of a boy named James Phipps. Two months later, he inoculated the boy with smallpox matter, and the boy did not develop smallpox. So cowpox is called vaccinia, and therefore it's led to the description of the inoculation as vaccination. There was a lot of controversy at the time. As with Mary Toft, um, you know, was man threatened? Was this interspecies going to happen? And here is um, James Gilray's uh, hypothetical complications of what might happen. Um, See, they're all producing um, tumours of cows. Um, here is Jenna himself uh, inoculating the lady. There's a, um called opening medicine. The, the tub here. Sorry, I'm not able to see very well from this angle. A tub here with opening medicine in it and this is being dosed out to people and they're all coming out with these um, bovine tumours and here on the wall there is a picture of the um, sacred cow. However, we all know that small, smallpox now is a thing of the past, but uh, there was a great deal of controversy at the time. Now here we come into some of the rather more exotic treatments that were on offer. Self medication was common. Um, books and journals offered advice, had the Gentleman's Magazine, um, William Buchan's Domestic Medicine, which went into 142 editions. Um, and there were ready stocked medicine chests were available for men, women, and horses. And the good wife or lady of the manor often provided medication and care. And Tony Lumpkin complained to his mother in Oliver Goldsmith's She Stoops to Conquer, you have been dosing me ever since I was born. I have gone through every receipt in The Complete Housewife ten times over. And you have thoughts of coursing me through Quincy next spring. And here we have metallic tractors by James Gilray. And there was a vogue for electromagnetic stimulation. Metal rods about four inches in length, flat on one face and rounded on another, and one sharp end and one blunt, and two rods were held together and drawn downwards and outwards to draw out disease, a certain cure for all diseases. Uh, Tracturization, as it was called, was recommended for 20 minutes each day. And Elijah Perkins, who'd come from America with his um, tractors um, had been very popular in America. But Perkins was expelled from the Connecticut Medical Society. They were not too happy about his treatments. But its fame spread to London along with his son Benjamin, who was said to have commissioned Gilray to produce the print as an advert, but to keep the facts secret. Popularity increased. And the Perkinian Institute was established in London, and provincial branches have developed. However, criticism followed when it was found that wooden rods painted like the originals were equally effective, <laughs> uh, especially when accompanied by pseudo scientific jargon, and that no electrical or mag- magnetic influence was involved. By 1810, the fashion had died, and Benjamin returned to America with his fortune. And we have taking the waters, the comforts of Bath, by Rowlandson. And um, I don't know if any of you have been to, to, ba- to Bath and seen um, the waters there. But this is Bladen, who was the person who I think first started the water. But this is. Rowlandson's view, and then we have the pump room and bath. Uh, there are two features on here that still remain. One of them is the, well, the Tompkins clock, which was one of the original Tompkins clock, and a statue of Nash, And here are these people um, taking their water. Sea bathing at Margate. Not sure who the artist was here, but um, that was another fashion. So, medical images of disease were used as analogous to moral failings. This is a very famous um, painting, a print, and it shows Vesalius and the dissection. It's a frontispiece. To um, um, the, the Humani Corpus Fabricus by Vesalius. Now, this is Hogarth's version of that. Here, with the, you've got your body here, and you've got um, the dog, the sort of vivisection, um, and people watching and the skeletons around. Now, Hogarth. This is from his Four Stages of Cruelty. And this is a series of four supporting fieldings campaign against the increase in the amount of crime that was happening in London, especially those of murder and robbery. And in the final scene, here we have Tom Nero, and he is the heartless young man Literally so, as the dog eats his heart there. Uh, And he began his life of crime by cruelly taunting animals in the streets of London and was eventually hanged for the murder of his mistress. So Nero's body is handed over to the College of Surgeons for dissection, a public anatomy. Um, An audience is assembled, watching with various degrees of interest and dismay. And you see, this is all. um, Hogarth is likely to have seen um, this frontispiece, and he has um, adapted it to his own um, um, paintings. But the contemporary surgeon to Hogarth, John Freak, is in the president's chair. Here he is. Uh, Hogarth probably attended dissections performed by William Hunter, contemporaries. Um, he was a leading anatomist of the day as i'm sure you all know and he actually bought some of hogarth's prints a pullion attached around the neck of nero indicates that he was um arrived there via the rope and that was the hangman's rope now hogarth often showed mixed messages the callousness of the surgeons was equal he believes to that of Nero. Um, such treatment was thought to deny the possibility of resurrection on the day of judgment. A similar, but less complicated print is this political one called State Butchers, a political satire in 1788 on the Regency crisis. The Prince of Wales had been an ally Um, sorry, he'd been criticised following attempts to assume power in place of his mad father, George III. He became an ally of Fox, the leader of the opposition party, and the public resented his behaviour. In this print, however, Rowlandson criticises Pitt, the prime minister, and the king's ministers, for keeping the Prince of Wales from the throne at the time. And Pitt had been offered £50,000 by the City of London, if he would resign, he refused. And again, when offered the offer was doubled. And here Pitt is the place. Oh. Here is Pitt in the place of the Dr. Freak and Rosalius. Um, and he's pointing to the prince's heart saying um, it should be removed the good quality of his heart will utterly ruin our plan therefore cut that out first says Pitt so medical attributes were often used in prints and they would be understood by the viewers here we have the grave robbers or the resurrectionists and uh, they brought their bodies to um, College of Surgeons, or they provided these for the, anatomization, and um, they're put in into baskets and taken along for dissection. Now this is another resurrection one, but this time we have William Hunter here, and these people are at the museum. And they're trying to find their spare parts um, because uh, if they could not be resurrected if they were not intact. And so there's one lady here who's come up to him and she's looking for her virginity. So there we have it, from Mary Toft and her rabbits to resurrectionists and... uh, I I hope you've found those interested. And if you haven't already seen the exhibition upstairs, then do go and have a look. Thank
0: you. Well, thank you very much indeed. Um, I'm a trained Victorianist and I'm delighted to say that this confirms my prejudice that the 18th century was a complete farce.
1: Um,
0: uh, But we have uh, five minutes or so if you'd be able to take some questions I'm sure
1: well I'll try and do my best <laughs> um can I go back to drawing blood from a body is it still done today in a legal form of some kind to relieve tension or whatever it might be I'm sorry I didn't catch all that. Um, Is uh, bloodletting still done today to relieve tension and other things? Um, Not in quite the same fashion, but um, yes, I think in some cases it might well be for high blood pressure, but it's not really recommended as a, um, uh, well, plenty of doctors around. (laughs) No, I wouldn't think that it is used.
0: I can respond to that briefly. It's used as a treatment for hemochromatosis, which I don't know how to spell, I'm afraid. Um, uh, which is, clinicians you know, or clinicians in the audience will correct me, but it's uh, an embarrassment of iron in the blood, I think. Yeah. Anybody? Yes. My mother gets bled periodically by a, a hematologist with an eye for history. It's very yeah. interesting. Right. How do
1: Quack? Oh, sorry. You use the word quack a lot. I just wonder if that word was used in the 18th century because uh, I'm non medical, but I must say it seemed to me that there was absolutely no difference between the practice of the quacks and the practice of the medics. Well, the charlatan is another word that was used, I think, but uh, I'm sure there are probably still a number of quacks around.
0: The microphone's going It was used at the time, though. Quack, wasn't it? Yes,
1: it? I think so, yes. Quacksalver. Isn't that the name? full name Quacksalver? I was wondering whether or not there is any allusion to madness in the images that you've portrayed. I missed, I didn't get all that. Uh, oh, reference you'll be to madness
0: terrific. in the images.
1: Um, well, there are, if, if you look at the Rake's Progress, then that's another of Hogarth's. Uh, eight in that series Uh, and I'd love to have gone through all these I'm a great fan of Hogarth as you might have gathered but uh, that um, contains some images of bedlam and there are various um, ones of madness yes but uh, I'm sorry I didn't have the time to include those One final
0: question in the front here
1: I too am a, a Hogarth addict, and I noticed in the harlot's progress, I had a question and an observation. Um, the observation was that the woman looking after the harlot already has the sign of ven- venereal disease because she has the pox, and the curtains are closed behind, in the bed behind, which suggests that there is more forthcoming, um, and I also wondered by the door there's a circular item with little dots in it and I wondered what that might be because it was very uh, the prominent door. I don't know if I can um, there's a Jew's bread um, by the door yeah. yes, but, that's the housing. yes that, um, but I'm not quite sure of the implication of that it looks as if it might be a fly catcher, but I understand that it is Jews bread, right. um, uh, this maybe for salvation, I mean I, I really am not sure of that, but I'm glad you like Hogarth things and uh, yes, if, if any of you do get a chance to go and look do I went to an hotel with my husband in, up in Cumbria, and there was a library there. We were just going to this hotel for a coffee, and they showed us into the library, and I was delighted to see they had um, harlot 's Progress images the prince around the wall, but they were all out of order. Uh, they were quite a haphazardly placed, uh, and I just went to the reception and said, I'm glad you had Hogarth's prince, but can you tell me why they're not in the right order? And she just looked at me and she said, you aren't. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um,
1: further to the comment made earlier, I'm just going to confirm that the talk on Mary Toft and the birth of rabbits has already been delivered, sadly. It took place at the old operating theatre. But I am proud to say that I know a descendant of Mary Toft, but on the human, sadly, not the rabbit (laughs) side, I should clarify. And she'll be furiously embarrassed every time I bring that up. But it's just such a good story, I have to tell it.
0: Well, uh, on those bombshells, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I will draw this lecture um, to a close. Do go and see the exhibition, little exhibition, um, that includes, for example... Arlinson's uh, tooth extractor. That yes. uh, was certainly one that I spotted there. Um, our next events um, on the 26th of May for half term, we've got some family fun with a barber surgeon, have we? A Victorian barber surgeon back in the 19th century. And then for more adult fun, which sounds wrong, um, Mick Crumplin will be delivering a uh, wonderful lecture on, on Waterloo on the 16th of June. Uh, it remains only to thank our speech-to-text colleagues, to thank Haley and Jane for organising this and running around with a microphone. Thank you for turning out um, uh, today in such numbers and to thank our speaker for an illuminating and entertaining lecture. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs>